Project Green with Bobby Kerr. With thanks to ESB Networks, connecting you to a clean electric future. ESBnetworks.ie. This is Project Green with Bobby Kerr. We're continuing to explore sustainability within businesses and discussing the steps industries are taking to reduce their carbon footprint. This week, it's all about technology. To talk to me about what this sector is doing and what we could do moving forward in attempts to attain carbon neutrality, I'm delighted to be joined today by Colin Baker. He's from backfromthefuture.ie. He also is a broadcaster with Virgin TV. Roger Highfield is a science director at the London Science Museum. And Owen Owen Cassidy is a partner at law firm Mason, Hayes & Kern. You're all very welcome to the programme Colin, we might start with you. Um, I know uh, technology is your is is basically your bailiwick. And well, it's most... my baby. It's my hobby. It's yeah. my wife. It's my everything. Yeah. Well, if we talk about, I suppose, you know, individual technology. So mm. things like mobile phones, headphones, you know, personal laptops. Talk to us about, you know, carbon footprint and and measuring it around because I think. One of the big problems we have is people don't know what their carbon footprint is. Mm, so, absolutely. you know, when you when it comes to, I suppose, domestic technology, let's call mm. it that, just talk, talk to us, give us your views on, you know, sustainability or otherwise uh, as it relates to those devices. Well, we, we obviously have, uh, without going into metrics, if we look at the amount of devices and the vast array of technology we have in our lives in the present day versus only 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, it's wildly different. Now, technology as we use it, the devices you mentioned, they're inordinately complex, not just in terms of how they work and how they're built, but the actual contents and the materials that are used and mined to produce those devices. Now, that growth in demand from the consumer space, be it consumer or business or education or or, or governmental, is is exponential. It's also ubiquitous. It's every aspect of society. So there's no doubt that the demand and the consumption of those devices is not just very, very high, it's on the up all the time and every day. But secondly, obviously, the the production of those devices we're at a point where, for the most part, most of these manufacturers, they do want us to replace them on a regular basis. And that is a, a, a very big challenge we're facing at the moment. Companies can flag their environmental impacts, uh, they can measure them to a degree, and they can uh, talk about uh, aspects and projects they're involved in. But ultimately, the biggest problem, I mean, you saw recently with Apple, they left out the charger from the iPhone 12 and forward. So there's no charger in the box anymore. And they maintain that that's saving about 2 million tonnes of carbon output. And and as well as 2 billion quid. Yes, possibly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think if you see it from the uh, not to say capitalist, but certainly the commercial aspect. There, there's commercial drivers to all this. That's what's driving companies like that to encourage us through various means to replace devices so regularly. The big problem is not just in the consumption of them, but it's in the uh, the end of life stages of those yeah. devices. 
And that's where the real challenge arises because within very short spaces of time, like your average phone becomes not quite obsolete, but but desirable to replace within about two years. And from the statistics in the States, as recently as 2019, a typical consumer replaces their phone in around about two years. So that end of life period and how it's uh, recycled Quite honestly, the uh, for all the bamboo toothbrushes you can buy, the uh, e-waste pile globally is the largest individual waste pile generated by right. consumption by far. It's also the most toxic uh, and the most difficult to dispose of in an environmentally friendly way. Okay, we'll come back to that because if we look at, even if we look at a mobile phone, we look at plastic, mm. we look at battery. Oh, cadmium, and, and as you lithium. Yeah. There's a lot of materials there that not only took a lot to mine and develop and, and, and insert into yeah. these things, but also to dispose of. And I think that's, we'll come back to that in yeah. a second. Let me bring in our, our second guest. Uh, he's Owen Cassidy, partner at law firm Mason Hayes and Curran. Good morning to you, Owen. How are you? Morning, Bobby. How are you doing? Very good. Now, um, talk to us about, uh, we, were, we were looking at this, um, at this podcast over the last number of weeks and somebody said that if a politician is faced with the choice of a blackout or using oil, uh, he or she will choose to use oil. Uh, so to give us your thoughts, I suppose, on at a high level of where we're at, at around, you know, uh, sustainability in energy and in technology. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting you use the, uh, the, 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 the sort of the blackout analogy and the sort of the desperation to avoid, uh, you know, what they call in the industry load shedding. But, um you know, I didn't think we were ever going to be in a situation in Ireland where, you know, load shedding and potential blackouts were going to be, you know, discussed in the media and that we were heading in that direction. I, I grew up in the in the in the 80s in Saudi Arabia and notwithstanding, you know, Saudi Arabia having, you know, you know, endless supplies of oil. We, we had rolling blackouts on a fairly regular, regular basis. Is that the, right? The, 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 early, the early 80s. Um, and um, kind of what we're. You know, the, the reason for why we're talking about, you know, potential energy security in Ireland um, uh, uh, in, in, over the last number of months it isn't really through a shortage of energy, but it's just through uh, security of supply and, and, and the system. So we have what we have in Ireland is massive penetration of, 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 uh, uh, of, of wind power on the system, which is which is which is super. But. Um, when you have increasing demand and you have intermittent generation like wind, um, it can take only a couple of incidents and uh, circumstances to to mean that you have a, a tight uh, security of supply. Um, um, so that's kind of what we're you know what we've been dealing with over over the last while. A couple of gas plants which have been which have been uh, which have been down or out of service. Um, period where we haven't had a huge amount of wind. And um, and a continuing increase in 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 demand for for and, electricity. And Owen, so, if we look sorry, to yeah. no, not at all. If 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 we look to, I suppose the future here, we're talking about you know the the everything basically becoming as much as possible anyway. Things becoming electrified. So that means batteries uh, and moving to electricity, and it also means. Somehow you mentioned there wind energy when the wind doesn't blow, 
we now see hydrogen coming to the fore. So, you know, I mean, the electrification of the, the, the economy actually presents like huge, huge opportunities for Ireland. So what we what we really need to do here is to fully electrify the economy to try and hit our um, the, the you know the, the targets that are, that are being set by Europe and being committed to in say COP COP twenty six, and um, but that actually creates a lot of opportunities for Ireland in terms of say you mentioned the ability to to kind of move to to green hydrogen and that's sort of using using the excess energy that we create and excess excess electricity we, we generate on the system to to actually um, produce hydrogen. Um, that can help Ireland um, electrify the you know parts of our um, our economy that are not easy to um, to to uh, cannot easily run off electricity. So heating, for example, and um, potentially running gas power plants. So yeah, no, it's 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 there's there are tremendous opportunities that are that are. Ed, I'd like to introduce Roger Highfield. Um, he's the science director at the London Science Museum. You're doing some very interesting things over there in Manchester, Roger. Um, can I ask you about the exhibit that you have and, and basically what you're showing the public? Because I think the education that you're providing is very, very unique. Well, we, we're actually doing you know, lots of different things across um, the group. I mean, as Colin uh, was saying, you know, one issue is the amount of carbon in the supply chain. And so we, we've got a, um, uh, a net zero target of 2033, but this includes what are called scope three emissions. So scope one and two are the kind of emissions you have, like heating your buildings. Um, and we're dealing with things like that by replacing, say, gas heaters with um, heat pumps in Manchester um, but the tricky one that people don't like talking about that much is scope three, which is actually trying to get net zero emissions for, for all your supply chains coming into the museum. That's a much harder thing to do. Um, we've got a very complicated set of sites. Um, we've got five museums and we've got a big storage site as well. And so our quest to get to net zero um, takes lots of different facets. So with our Science and Industry Museum in, in Manchester, as I say, we're using groundwater and a heat pump. Um, and you can think of a heat pump as a kind of refrigerator in reverse. Um, so we're going to, uh, you know, use that to, to warm uh, the building rather than burning gas and so on. We've just built a new uh, storage facility in Ralton, um, and we've used low-energy um, uh, practices. It's a sealed um, environment. We've used other things like hempcrete and so on to, to do more passive um, uh, sort of humidification of air and so on. Rather than using active systems, you've got to feed electricity into. Um, and when it comes to our steam locomotives, for example, which do depend on coal, and obviously the one thing we're trying to do is to stop burning carbon, we're now looking at things like bio-coal, where you're, you're making coal from organic... Um, refuse and leftovers and so on, coffee oh. grounds, you name it. So it's taking all sorts of um, manifestations across the whole museum group. And can I ask you, Roger, essentially the big thing is really the removal of CO2, um, of carbon dioxide. Can you tell well, us, that, can you tell us right. a little I mean, bit about I, how I you do the, that? The main thing is actually <laughs> we do have to cut our carbon emissions. But um, interestingly, in London, we've got a 
new exhibition called Our Future Planet, where we're looking at a whole range of technologies, nature-based solutions like planting forests through to, would you believe it, mechanical trees uh, and other methods to actually pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Mm. Um, but I should say, um, if I had a choice, um, I, it would always be not to emit the carbon in the first place. But if you look at, for example, the report from what's called the Climate Action Tracker um, on where we are with COP26, um, we're well away from uh, a one and a half degree target. In fact, we're heading for 2.7 degrees with the current commitments. And the general feeling is we are in such a uh, difficult position. We need carbon capture technologies as well if we're going to get anywhere near 1.5 degrees. Okay. Uh, let's go back to, to, to Colin Baker here from Back to the Future. Colin, we're... We're, we're, we're supposed we're knitting together here, you know, the, an expertise mm. uh, from a number of different facets. But looking at, I suppose, technology and sustainability is really the common denominator. Mm. Um, in in relation to, you know, individuals like jo, the regular Joes and Josephines, what can they be doing to maybe reduce their carbon footprint? Because I often think that. It's such a complex and vast issue that we, as individuals, we often get overwhelmed in how we can sort it out because it almost seems too big for any individual to deal with. But what are small things that people can do to improve their uh, carbon footprint around technology? You're absolutely right. It's very easy to become overwhelmed by such a, a vast and complex problem, set of challenges and possible solutions. It is multivariant and multi-level and multi-pronged in terms of what the solutions, and that's interesting that you mentioned about the, 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 the different dimensions of what we're talking about this morning and the different backgrounds that we share. Um, in terms of what Joe and Josephine can do, it's baby steps, small changes um, to behaviour that build over time into healthier and, and, and better habits. So, for example, this morning, I came in here on an e-scooter from our shared village out in Dunleary, out in uh, Glenageary. Uh, uh, my backpack there, I don't know if you noticed, that has a solar panel on the yeah. back of it, and that has a USB port on the side. That charges my phone on the go. I have a solar panel at home. It wasn't expensive, it's about €600, Euro, and I installed that in order to charge my e-scooter. Now, I'm not flagging my brilliance in terms of eco-friendliness. I'm not the best at splitting my waist sometimes. There's lots of habits that I, I haven't quite enveloped yet. But what we can look at is our general consumption. One thing I'm a huge fan of and a huge protagonist of, uh, an advocate of, is refurbished IT. Yeah. And in my business, we <laughs> last year decided to almost eradicate selling new laptops. We now specialise in only factory refurbished commercial grade laptops. One, because they last exponentially longer. You're talking the guts of a decade potentially. Uh, two, because they're better built for servicing. So you can actually take them apart and service them and repair them and upgrade them. Either yourself, if you're prepared to do a little bit of research, or bring it to an expert like ourselves or a learned friend uh, and get them to do it for you. And Actually, if you look at what I mentioned at the very outset to circle back to that, the idea that products are built to last, in a lot of cases, one to two years. Yeah. Cheap laptops and computers that sell you on how shiny they are or what colour they are. Yeah. Looking at 
buying more conscientiously and getting the right advice. Look, there's lots of advice available online, lots of great YouTube videos, lots of advisors out there, lots of people like ourselves who are more than prepared to help and advise. And buying equipment that is going to last, that you can service and repair. There's a movement called the Right to Repair movement that we're part of. And it's it's designed to promote this very idea that instead of replacing, having equipment replaced with brand new equipment and being this hobby horse of, I need new. I was talking to my sister last week, who's very, she's really eco-friendly. She's starting a new job and I suggested that she might get a refurbished laptop from her company and she said, God, no. No, no, I'd be so insulted. We need to change our ideals in that sense. Yeah. We don't <clears throat> constantly need to consume new. I think you're so right about that. And we're really wasteful as a society. Yes, I, exactly. I totally get that. Um, I, maybe I could bring Owen Cassidy back in. Owen, are you there? Yeah? I'm, I'm here, Bobby. Yes. Apologies about that. Not my, at all. My sensitive microphone is picking up some background noise. Not at all. Just, just on Colin's point there about... You know, the, the fact that we don't fix anything anymore. Everything gets chucked in the bin. People buy new things. And then we have to dispose of what is in often cases. If you go out to Havana, Cuba, you still see the guys repairing 1950s American automobiles out there. And they rebuild component parts to keep the show on the road. It Wouldn't it be great as a society if, if everything didn't have to be brand spanking new? Yeah, hundred percent. And I think just when Colin was talking about the you know the right to repair, and you know only this year the the EU has introduced a right to repair law for for electrical goods. Um, but but interestingly, you know it you know laptops and and smartphones aren't within the scope of the, the current rules, which which require you know the manufacturers and the companies that are selling those products to ensure that you know those products can be repaired for up to ten years. Um, and for manufacturers to ensure parts are available for up to, up to a decade for, for professional repair companies to carry out those repairs. And, and you know, there have been many surveys conducted about what people want around this issue. And there's a EU survey conducted and 77% of EU citizens would rather repair devices than replace them. And, uh, and 79% of manufacturers think should be legally obliged to facilitate the repair of digital devices or the replacement of their of their parts. So I mean I'm I am a a a, a great believer in intervention, right? And, and probably say that as a lawyer, you know, we like rules and regulations. But I think it's it's very hard to change the behaviors of consumers or manufacturers of these two, you know, this equipment without forcing them to do so. So without trying to make and, and, and encourage consumers and forcing manufacturers in those circumstances to try and change <clears throat> change behaviours. Could I say to you, Owen, though, that one of the, if you look at, say, the motor trade and if you look at its evolution in the past 10, 15 years, like, effectively, the motor trade was happy to repair only if they were doing the repairing. So they built black boxes of computers into more, into motor vehicles that the you know, regular mechanic up the up the, the back street that one could go to was effectively taken out of the system. So again, it comes back to almost following the money that, that these large manufacturers will agree to repair, but only if they're doing the repairing. Yeah, absolutely. I think you need to, you need to try and break that down. Um, 
and and I mean I, I I'm also I'm, I'm not a fan of buying new cars right I'm not I'm not a fan of consumers buying new cars and trying to you know trying to keep things that you know that, that are working perfectly fine um and can work for you know 15 to should really have a 15 20 year life yeah. um and and introducing the relevant legislation to to ensure that there is an ability to 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 repair uh, you know particularly particularly things like you know like 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 cars that it, that it isn't just restricted to the you know the bmw service garage um, yeah. for example let me bring back in uh, Roger Highfield, the science director at the London Science Museum. Roger, do you think that if we look at, you know, if we if we sort of follow the money here, if we can, if we can persuade consumers, you know, or if we can entice consumers through somehow financially incentivizing them to go green or to be more uh, carbon neutral, what do you think of? Because it's kind of a it's a balance between getting the carrot and stick approach right is the sweet spot here, is it not? I, I agree. Um, in fact, um, people talk about tipping points now. You know, in the climate system, we're very worried that the Earth might hit a or certain bits of the climate system might hit a tipping point, which accelerates climate change. You know, things like deforestation of the Amazon or thaw, thawing of the permafrost. But there are also positive tip, tipping points to do with social change. And, you know, if enough people do something, you get economies of scale for technology. So take those heat pumps. They're expensive now. But if enough people buy them, they're going to get much cheaper. Now, when you look at things like electric vehicles, there's a lovely example of a positive tipping point that began in Norway in 1995 when the lead singer of the pop band AHA and the head of a Norwegian environmental group, Bologna, they went on a road trip in an electric car and they refused to pay road tolls, they, they parked illegally, they ignored penalties, and they attracted huge um, publicity. And in fact, the car was eventually impounded. Um, but afterwards, what happened was um, laws were passed to exempt electric vehicles in Norway from tolls, and there were other incentives. And now Norway's got the world's highest per capita electric vehicle ownership. And I think that global positive tipping point will come when electric vehicles cost the same to manufacture as conventional cars, and we're heading there. And I have to say, you know, from the viewpoint of the museum, it's kind of back to the future. You know, in our collections, we've got an 1897 electric taxi that was running around in London, and we could have had an all-electric vehicles many years ago, but we're getting there. And I think people shouldn't underestimate their, their power to exert change. If enough people select locally sourced products, if enough people, say, spend a couple of days a week not eating meat and dairy and so on, that will have a big, big difference. And so let's, let's go for those positive tipping points. What year was it that the chap from Aha did the, did I think the road that was trip? 1995. So we're, um, we're slow learners then, we're slow learners. Yeah, yeah, I want to give you a round of applause for that, Roger. Not just for the uh, what you just said, but also for the uh, London Science Museum. You've, I thought I had a good job, but you've got an even better job. I'm so jealous. <laughs> Thank you. The only reason that like, I, I get dragged away from your museum by my friends after six or seven hours walking around because they want to do something else. Uh, so next time I'm going back on my own. But um, really, really interesting point about the social change that needs to happen. And that is far more nuanced. It's difficult to grapple with. And it comes down to 
almost stories Bobby you and I talked about stories and we lo- all love stories yeah. how pivotal that story about aha was driving around not paying their penalties and we all kind of favour the underdog there and go, yeah don't pay your penalties and that story brought about such significant change in Norway um, and, and, and it's interesting that, that that small or seemingly innocuous story has made such change but that's stuff that's very difficult to regulate as Owen mentioned you need to compel companies a lot of the time with taxation or laws or yeah. legislation and and it's very difficult to to render social change just with legislation one of the things and just to talk about that incentivizing mm. society let's call it and e- even by way through business you know things like carbon credits i i i personally think that most consumers have a bit of an issue with it, with what's been measured and how it's measured in other words Lots of people don't understand, through no fault of their own, how to measure my carbon input or output. Mm. Um, and I think if that, if there was a, if there was a currency that was acceptable to all, that we all knew what it was we're trying to reduce in a tangible way, and that we things were measured the same way, do you think that would be helpful? I think that's the businessman in you coming out. You want to see a spreadsheet, don't you? Well, I kind of do. Um, <laughs> I do think, I, look, I think it's very difficult. If you look at even just, we'll just take a, a, a microcosm of my phone in front of me here. There is obviously the carbon output of manufacturing that phone, but then there's the output of getting it to me. But then there's the output of how much I use and what data centres I access, because one of the largest consumers of power in Ireland is data centres. So how much am I using? And they can actually measure if I'm accessing the internet. We talk about screen time for four hours a day. How much is that consuming? And then, of course, how long does my phone last? And then how am I disposing it? So it's incredibly complex. And I think if we try to just stick numbers on that, it'll end up with fallacies and, and just mistakes and yeah. errors and too much time. I think if it's a, as, as uh, Roger mentioned, a, a lifestyle, a narrative change, a social change in how people behave with a view towards reducing consumption or changing behaviours towards more environmentally friendly and renewable methodologies. I think the the story that flows through that will be more powerful than just measuring the, 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 you know, the metrics and the yeah. spreadsheet of same. Um, Owen, if we could go back to you. Colin mentioned data centres there and really they seem to have been vilified a lot in, in, in the media recently and you know, they, are, they are using uh, electricity which is what we're all trying to move towards. Now they do use a lot of it but rather than you know, vilifying and and preventing uh, the growth of data centres. Could there be an argument to say that as long as the energy they were consuming was sustainably generated, that, you know, we could become a real powerhouse, not to use a cliche in Ireland, um, and be very proud uh, of having these data centres? What's your view on that? Well... I think, you know, for some of the things that Colin mentioned about just the, um, you know, the increase in technology uses, usage and data storage. So this, this is a global issue, you know, data centers are a global issue, but what has happened in Ireland is that we're, we're sort of at the forefront of it in, in the context of the extent to which data centers, you know, the ratio of data centers uh, consumption on Ireland's electricity network. 
So, <coughs> so it, they were projected to use, the data centers were projected to use about 29% of Ireland's total energy consumption by, by 2028. Right? That's, that's the sort of what the, the, the warning signs are, are, are telling us. Um, and you're absolutely right. They, you know, they they primarily use electricity, but they also require, you know, you know, gas supply as well, direct gas supply. But what are the data center companies sort of doing about this? And part of this is is because of the, you know, the um, the optics around um, that large consumption of power. They they're at the forefront of driving and delivering, you know, the development of of wind farms through corporate PPAs. Um, so the likes the likes of of Amazon and uh, and Google and Facebook are are promoting and and creating opportunities for the development of of, of wind farms that otherwise wouldn't wouldn't have been built out, um, and uh, they're also responding to sort of the you know when we talk about this intervention state intervention to try and drive change you know the the Commission for Regulation of Utilities here in Ireland is. It, it, you know, is, is, is in the process of, of issuing directions around how the electricity um, system operators will um, grant connection offers to, to these data centres. And they're requiring the data centres to have you know, effectively their own um, um, generation of power on site. But not just that, for, but they, they, they're looking for those data centres to be able to respond to system-wide electricity issues that 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 Ireland is facing. So, yeah. so when I, when we talk about sort of you know the wind not blowing, um, that the, the data centers could have gas generation on site that can respond and react and provide power into the system, which would have been taken by the otherwise would have been taken <clears> by the data center. So you know we're acting for a, a, a new US entrant into, into that market who um, who has this technology that's you know gas and storage that, that can okay. do that? So so just as you say, Bobby, it is it is kind of facilitating, and I think Ireland has an opportunity to be a leader globally and on on how you know these these data centers can be integrated into a system and how they can work in a network in a way which is you know, good good for society as well. Okay, Roger, um, you mentioned a tipping point earlier in society about you know. Uh, that point where we finally, you know, the light bulb uh, goes on and we finally realise that collectively we have to do something um, and we have to do something as individuals uh, as well as it being government's problem or somebody else's problem. Do you think we're at that point now? I, I think um, you know, people like Greta Thunberg have made a huge uh, difference in terms of getting... Uh, getting this on the agenda. I've got to say, from a personal perspective, I'm slightly shocked that we're at COP26 and we still haven't really got there. I, I went to the Toronto climate meeting in 1988, can you believe it? This is pre-COP, and the agenda was exactly the same then as it is today. And wow. we, we made surprisingly little <laughs> progress. Um, but, of course, you know, we, we mentioned social tipping points, but, of course, governments can do their bit as well. And in fact, if you look at the UK decarbonizing its power sector, which it's done pretty quickly, um, that was a combination of carbon taxes with an EU emissions scheme that made gas cheaper than coal. And then with a boost in renewable energy generation, which has really grown much more quickly than people expected, this tipped coal into unprofitability and led to decommissioning of coal plants 
And so, you know, we want that to happen globally now. We need the cost of coal, um, uh, you know, when, when wind and solar worldwide um, undermine uh, are actually cheaper than coal plants, then we're actually in a great position and we can decarbonize the global power generation sector. Unfortunately, in poorer countries, coal is still, when you've got a lot of people in energy poverty, it's still an attractive option. So we yeah. need wind and solar to be even more attractive than coal and their governments have a key role to play. And I believe most of the coal that we now consume in this country comes from Colombia. So not only is it a fossil fuel, it's shipped halfway across the world to get here, uh, which seems kind of bizarre. Uh, Colin, going back to you, if we look at uh, things like plastic in, in, in regular home devices, in laptop keyboards, in mm. mobile phones, like should all plastic be recyclable? Like should every piece of plastic... And of course, be made from from a, an existing piece. Well, as you know, there's there's um, a lot of different types of plastic, and there's a lot of variety in how that is created in a way that is recyclable. And technology is improving all the time in its ability to recycle it. Yeah. The difficulty with very very heavily mixed products and very complex products like laptops and phones is just the multivariance of, of, of content right. um, between t- and, and the tiny traces of it. So it, it's cur- in current technology, it's, it's pretty much impossible to fully recycle most of these devices. Um, as regards the impetus to force or compel companies to create them with plastics and in, in a manner in which it is recyclable, that's back to maybe Owen's point about legislating and legally uh, or fiscally compelling companies to do so. But you've also got to look at the way in which they've engineered products. The problem uh, with a lot of the design of consumer products is that they're built in a manner in which it is very much designed not to be repaired yeah. and not to be taken apart and not to be recycled. And, and that is quite insidious that in the consumer space, in terms of consumer consumption, I think that is the most challenging yeah. aspect. And that is remaining unchecked as far as I can see. Very large companies like Apple and Samsung, they, they, they you know, to some extent, they can uh, work to their own rule. Uh, uh, with excuses like, well, you know, we need it to be safe. We don't want consumers opening our devices or we want to maintain quality. Yeah. It happened recently in tractors. One of the big tractor brands made it so that uh, uh, farmers couldn't repair their own tractors. and yeah. They went the black box route that car manufacturers had done. So um, in terms of recycling, um, it's not just about recycling and being able to take the plastic and remake it. It's also about being able to maintain that for a hell of a lot longer. And what about even, you know, in developing countries, mm. you know, uh, you, you see computers in skips, you yeah. see stuff just being chucked. Mm. It really, really appalls me. But that, that so many of those devices could be cleaned up, mm. sent to another jurisdiction that is, that is you know, embracing technology, mm. albeit a little older than... than than what we are fortunate enough to have here. You like, notice as economic uh, conditions change and as prosperity improves, 
society starts to consider environmental concerns, uh, starts to consume more, um, t- starts to trend towards wanting, desiring, demanding new product more yeah. regularly. Um, so there's there's a change back to our social idea of people's expectations and people's behaviours. It changes, and obviously in, in poorer countries, you mentioned about coal, you mentioned about repairing items and keeping cars going, I think in Panama, was it? Or uh, no, Cuba. In Cuba, Havana. sorry, yeah, yes. Yeah. And we do it in Panama as well, yeah, I noticed. And, yeah. and, and, and I, I love to see that, cars being maintained in pristine condition from the 50s and 60s. Yeah. And it's lovely to see that we've given up on a lot of those, those habits, but also on the skills because the average person in Ireland doesn't tend to know how to take apart a phone. Whereas you find, we take on a lot of interns from Europe. And when we take interns from, for training from the likes of Poland, we find that they are naturally and intrinsically more knowledgeable about repairing. They're Isn't more in the habit of repairing items. Yeah, yeah. So again, it's the socioeconomic scale as it goes down, they become more inclined to repair and sustain. Yeah. Roger, uh, just back to you um, in, in terms of the future, in, in, and I know you're close to the UK market. What do you see? Where do you see this going in the next decade? You talked about uh, being at a conference in the 80s and nothing changing. Um, if we're sitting here from 10 years from now, what will be different? Uh, we haven't made as much progress on, say, carbon capture technologies as we should have done. You know, in the UK, there's been a lot of stop-start funding of projects to do that. And I think, actually, there are now a lot of interesting projects. As I said, you know, we've got a prototype mechanical tree in the museum designed by Klaus Lackner. How does that work? How does the mechanical tree work? Well, that, it, it's, it's about a thousand times more efficient than a real tree. Right. It's got leaves um, that are <laughs> impregnated with a resin with um, mm. a carbonate chemical that passively soaks up carbon dioxide, turns to bicarbonate, and then the tree retracts, hence a mechanical tree. The leaves are wetted and they release the carbon dioxide um, which can then be used either pumped underground, um, you know, where it becomes mineralized or turned into products. You know, if you go to the Science Museum, you can see some of the products, whether they be yoga mats or toothpaste and other things. Uh, and then the tree uh, sort of expands again, the leaves dry off, and then they can capture more carbon dioxide. So that's one way of doing it. And is there, there is are other more industrial processes being used at plants like Drac as well, where right. a solvent picks up carbon. So these are quite exciting, but they're still quite embryonic technologies. Right, okay. Uh, Owen, uh, just, uh, just back to you in terms of uh, what, what, what our government might do. Um, we can see that with, with Eamon Ryan and the Greens uh, holding power at the moment, that you know climate change initiatives, sustainability are very much top of the government agenda, but you know, if the Greens come out of power, is that is that likely? Are we likely to have to start all over again? No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, there's there's sufficient momentum, just certainly around the decarbonisation of, say, the electricity system. Um, there is sufficient think, momentum in the private sector, and the kind of the plans are in place for the next ten years. That that is, I think, that is going to keep going, no matter you know, no matter who is really in, in, in government. 
Um, but where where I you know I think what is a pity to see in Ireland is we're making lots of really strong commitments um, around um, you know what we're going to do to decarbonize the economy, but then we're not taking the steps that are going to change human behavior, yeah. which is a huge part of the problem. So if you look at say the the, the national oh, the transport plan for for Dublin that was just just released. And kind of delaying rail networks and that kind of thing over the next, you know, for the next 20 years for the, the Dart Underground. And you see people objecting to the um, you know, to cycle paths being uh, being put in place in you know in Sandy Mount. So I think we certainly transport and heat, I think, are our two big major issues. Right. And I don't think. I think I don't think we're driving the behavioural change that we need. Um, I think over the last twenty years, if you think about, you know, people have been talking about climate change, we're talking about it for longer than that. I, I know, but um, I don't think it's got very uncomfortable for 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 people and consumers yet. And yeah. I think it needs to get extremely uncomfortable over the next um, fifteen years, twenty years, if we're if we're going to deliver. On the necessary targets to to maintain um, um, the the you know uh, the not go up to that sort of three percent increase in 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 temperature. Yeah, I think you're dead right, um, Colin. Maybe last word to you. Another sort of bugbear of mine is the amount of packaging that comes with everything. And when we talk about technology and we talk about devices, mm. uh, if we look at the packaging associated with some of them. It really can be excessive, can't it? Again, it's a social uh, issue, really, and it's it's a, it's a behavioural issue. Uh, one of our businesses is the DIY sector and, and, and in hardware. And we noted, rather unfortunately, that if you remember the pick-and-mix screws of years ago, you'd go in and you'd pick your dozen screws and you only want four washers and maybe you want some of these as well. And you kind of pick-and-mix like the sweets. And, of course, that's changed um, one might say because you need to barcode and skew things nowadays uh, and have it easier to pack and safer and people aren't digging their hands in the things for hygiene, etc. But also there's a perception. So if you note now that you can buy a packet off the wall and you see and there's six screws in it and it's two ninety nine, and we've analysed this, the consumer will look at that and say, mm, two ninety nine, that's pretty good value. But then if you hand them the same six or 12 screws from a box and pop it in a brown bag, they think it's a ripoff. Yeah. So it's interesting that pa the consumer is expecting packaging. We have uh, involved an initiative with cables and chargers directly with manufacturers. We get chargers for laptops and phones and the likes without packaging. Yeah. So with a single outer, protected, etc., for transport, but we have them in drawers, almost like a, an old chemist or an apothecary from years ago in our main branch in Georgia Street. And from time to time, a customer will say, oh, it doesn't have a box. And, and so they feel that the quality is lower or there's a problem with it because there's not that lovely packaging. So there that. is very much a retail perception that packaging is what is required. It the same value. with laptops. Yeah. We don't. We 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 sell laptops without packaging. We use a a, a non-plastic based wrapping, so a compostable uh, replacement for wrapping. And 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 again, we we're challenged by the fact that people will often say, "Oh gosh, I'm not sure without a box." So it is a behavioural element as well. Okay. 
Well, look, it's been a fascinating discussion. I want to thank all my guests. Uh, Colin Baker from Back to the Future, uh, .ie, also a broadcaster at Virgin. Uh, Roger Highfield, the science director at the London Science Museum. And Owen Cassidy, the partner at the law firm Mason, Hayes and Kern. Thank you all for your input and indeed a very, very interesting conversation. I wish you all well. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Now, a huge thanks to all my guests today on this episode of Project Green. Make sure to subscribe at Newstalk.com or through the Newstalk app powered by Goaloud. Next time, we're going to be looking at sustainability of the hospitality industry, so look out for that. Take care and thanks for listening. Project Green with Bobby Kerr. With thanks to ESB Networks. National Network Local Connections Programme consultations now open. Get involved. ESBnetworks.ie If you are 65 or over, or you have a weak immune system, you can now get your second COVID-19 booster vaccine. Your vaccine is due four months after your last vaccine. It will improve your protection from COVID-19. You can book a vaccination centre appointment on hsc.ie or contact a participating GP or pharmacy. For more information on your second booster or to book an appointment, visit hsc.ie or call our team in HSE Live on 1800 700 700 from the HSE for us all.